PenPod, internal medicine podcasts from the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, I'm Emma Edmondson, a fourth-year MedPeds resident, and my faculty advisor for this podcast is Dr. Anastasia Amaro, associate professor in the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism and medical director for Penn Metabolic Medicine. Today, we'll be talking about the evaluation and management of obesity. Let's start with a case. You're seeing a new patient in clinic. He's a 45-year-old man with no significant past medical history, and he's here to establish care because he hasn't seen a doctor in a while. He takes no medication, and he identifies as, quote, a generally healthy guy. He's six feet tall and weighs 250 pounds, giving him a BMI of 33.9. Vitals on exam are notable for a blood pressure of 140 over 90, but are otherwise within normal limits. He mentions that he could, quote, stand to lose a little weight. So where do you begin? When approaching a patient with obesity, the first thing you need to consider is what your goals are. We propose that your goals should be, one, identification and removal of obesogenic agents, two, screening for comorbid medical conditions, three, determining weight loss goals and approaches to weight loss, and four, the establishment of healthy habits. Let's start by talking about identification and removal of obesogenic agents. This basically comes down to taking a good history. Some questions that get at the underlying cause of a patient's obesity may include age at the onset of weight gain, events associated with weight gain, previous weight loss attempts, change in dietary patterns, their history of exercise, and current exercise regimen. Identifying behaviors that contribute to obesity can play a key role in the strategies you take with your patient to help them lose weight. This also allows you to screen for binge eating disorder, bulimia, and night eating syndrome. Make sure to ask about a family history of obesity. And in the social history, touch on elements that may reveal behaviors or biopsychosocial risk factors for weight gain, such as a history of recent smoking cessation, which unfortunately is is associated with obesity, a change in marital status, occupation, recent pregnancy, menopause, or other stressful life events. Next, it's important to thoroughly examine their medication list. There are many medications that cause weight gain. Some common offending agents are antipsychotics, antidepressants, anticonvulsants, and common diabetes medications like insulin and sulfonylureas. Keep these medications in mind when starting new meds for your patients with obesity as well. For example, there are many weight-neutral diabetes medications such as DPP-4 inhibitors that could be tried before medications that do cause weight gain. There are also medications for diabetes and depression that are associated with weight loss that you might choose. To round out your history, Next, move on to screening for comorbid medical conditions. The American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists and the American College of Endocrinology recommend assessing for the following complications of obesity. Hypertension, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, osteoarthritis, depression, and in women, PCOS, and in men, hypogonadism. Most of these complications you'll screen for through your history and vital signs, 
However, an additional exam maneuver to consider, which may influence your assessment of their cardiovascular risk, is measuring central adiposity with a waist circumference. To do this, place a string or paper tape and measure around the patient's middle, just above their hip bones at the largest area of circumference. Wait until they completely exhale and measure the circumference, taking care not to compress the skin. A waist circumference of greater than 40 inches in men and greater than 35 inches in women is considered elevated and indicative of increased cardiometabolic risk. A waist circumference of greater than 35 inch inches in Asian males and greater than 31 inches in Asian females is considered abnormal for that ethnic group. Once you've screened for comorbidities, you can get into the details about whether or not they need to lose weight, how much they should lose, and what approach will get them there. So your next task is to determine the weight loss goal and their approach to weight loss. So first, make sure you've identified the right patient. Do they need to lose weight? And who needs to lose weight the most? There's a direct relationship between increased weight and increased morbidity once your BMI is greater than 25. We recommend targeting patients with a BMI greater than 30 or a BMI of greater than 27 with a comorbidity related to weight for weight loss. Patients with a BMI of greater than 40 are at highest risks, risk, and these patients should be counseled on lifestyle, pharmacotherapy, and surgical interventions. Next, identify the number. How much weight should they lose? It's helpful to educate patients on how much weight is achievable to lose and what mechanisms will help them get there. And it's important to note that health benefits have been reported with weight loss of only 5% of total body weight. In general, you can expect a 5 to 15% body weight loss through medical management. When we talk about medical management, we're referring to lifestyle changes and medication. Let's start with lifestyle changes, meaning diet and exercise. With lifestyle measures alone, you can expect an initial weight loss of 5 to 7% body weight. In general, dietary changes help the most with weight loss. An average deficit of 500 kilocalories per day will result in about a one pound weight loss per week. A total caloric intake of 1,200 to 1,500 kcals per day for women and 1,500 to 1,800 kcal per men for men generally promotes weight loss. You can counsel your patients to use calorie tracking apps that can help them make sure that they're at a calorie deficit. With regard to exercise, exercise helps more with weight maintenance than weight loss. Consider this, if a patient utilizes 100 calories during exercise each day, giving them 700 calories per week expended through exercise, it would take five weeks to utilize the energy in one pound of fat, which is 3,500 calories. Thus, it takes a considerable amount of time and effort to expend calories through physical activity that results in notable weight loss. However, exercise is important for insulin sensitivity and has other long-term benefits and is a mainstay of lifestyle modification that should be recommended for patients. The next part of medical management is pharmacotherapy. So how much additional weight loss do you get through medication? The addition of pharmacotherapy increases total weight loss to 10 to 15% of body weight, 
with any more than 15% body weight considered an excellent response to pharmacotherapy. If the weight loss goal for your patient is greater than 10 to 15% of their body weight, or if they have failed medical management, their next option is to consider surgical management. With surgical management, the amount of weight you lose depends on the procedure, but generally surgery has a much larger scale weight loss than medical management. With the RUNY gastric bypass procedure, you can expect approximately 20 to 30% weight loss at five years. For sleeve gastrectomy, you can expect approximately 20% weight loss at five years. And similarly, gastric banding shows an average of about 20% weight loss at five years. Now that you've reviewed how much weight can be lost and through which mechanism, it's time to choose the right approach for your patient. So identify the approach, lifestyle change, medication, or surgery. You can talk with your patient in detail about which type of intervention will work best for them within the context of their lives. First, let's talk about lifestyle changes. Fad diets are constantly springing up, and patients will ask about all different kinds. There are two evidence-based diets that you can recommend, the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet. The Mediterranean diet does not have strict components, but is generally high in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts and seeds, and includes olive oil as an important source of monounsaturated fat. It also allows for low to moderate wine consumption. There's observational data that demonstrates decreased overall mortality and cardiovascular mortality on the Mediterranean diet. In meta-analyses of randomized trials, the Mediterranean diet reduced risk of stroke compared with to low-fat diet, but had no impact on overall or cardiovascular mortality. It's only been noted in observational data. The next evidence-based diet you can recommend is the DASH diet. The DASH diet is comprised of four to five servings of fruit, four to five servings of vegetables, two to three servings of low-fat dairy per day, and less than 25% dietary intake from fat. It has been studied in both normotensive and hypertensive populations and found to lower systolic and diastolic blood pressure more than a diet rich in fruits and vegetables alone. The DASH diet has also been associated with a lower risk of colorectal cancer, cardiovascular disease, and premature mortality. Now let's talk about the evidence for exercise. As we mentioned before, exercise is generally better for weight management than weight loss. Meta-analyses looking at exercise alone resulted in modest reductions in weight compared with no treatment, but did show a reduction in total body fat. There is evidence to support exercise improving functionality and insulin sensitivity, but in general, it's not a good strategy for weight loss on its own. After lifestyle changes, your next option for weight loss is starting pharmacotherapy. When considering weight loss medications for your patient, you should take into account, first, their weight loss goal. Adding medications will give you an additional 5 to 10% of weight loss on top of the 5 to 7% that they can achieve from lifestyle modification. The cost of the medication, because some are costly. Potential side effects and whether the medication is injection versus oral, as this is an important factor for many patients. When considering weight loss medications, you have several options. We'll go through each medication by its mechanism, cost, and side effect profile. Your first option is Orlistat, a lipase inhibitor. This is an oral medication. 
Its main mechanism is the excretion of dietary fat, and it costs about $200 for a 30-day supply. Side effects include decreased absorption of some medications like levothyroxine and cyclosporin, oily spotting, fatty and oily stools, and fecal urgency and incontinence. Another medication option is a GLP-1 receptor agonist, liraglutide. The brand name is Sexenda. This is an injectable medication. Its main mechanism is to increase satiety and satiation and slowing of gastric emptying. It costs about $1,200 for a 30-day supply. Side effects include nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, pancreatitis, and there's been shown to have an increased risk of medullary thyroid cancer in rat models. This has not been shown in humans. Your next option is a serotonin agonist, Locazarin. The brand name is Belvique. This is another oral medication. Belvique's main mechanism is lowering the weight set point in the hypothalamus. It costs about $280 for a 30-day supply. Side effects include the risk of serotonin syndrome in use with combination of other drugs, although this is a low risk, headache, dizziness, fatigue, and nausea. Lastly, you have two combination drugs uh, available for weight loss. The first is naltrexone bupropion, which is called Contrave, another oral med. The main mechanism here is appetite suppression, and it costs about $280 for a 30-day supply. Side effects include nausea, transient hypertension, arrhythmias, narrow angle glaucoma, and a lowered seizure threshold. Your last combination medication is a sympathomimetic drug, fentyramine topiramate. The brand name is Qsymia. It's also oral. Its main mechanism is lowering the weight set point, but it also causes appetite suppression and the suppression of evening cravings. It costs about $200 for a 30-day supply. Side effects include increased heart rate, dizziness, anxiety, insomnia, and dry mouth. After medications, your next option to help your patients lose weight is bariatric surgery. But who should you refer? Candidates for bariatric surgery include adults with a BMI of greater than or equal to 40 without comorbid illness, or adults with a BMI of 35 to 39.9 with at least one serious comorbidity, like type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, obesity hypoventilation syndrome, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, pseudotumor cerebri, GERD, or debilitating osteoarthritis. Weight loss surgery should be reserved for patients in whom other methods of treatment have failed, and their goal weight loss should be about 20% or greater of their total body weight. Contraindications to bariatric surgery include uncontrolled psychiatric illness, including depression and psychosis, uncontrolled and untreated eating disorders, current drug or alcohol abuse, severe cardiac disease, severe coagulopathy, or the inability to comply with nutritional requirements, including lifelong vitamin replacement. Once you've decided a patient might be a good candidate for bariatric surgery, refer them to a surgeon to have a more sophisticated discussion about which type of surgery might be best for them. Okay, so now you have identified obesogenic agents, screened for comorbid medical conditions, determined the patient's weight loss goals, and the most appropriate approach to weight loss for your patient. 
The last element of obesity management is helping your patient establish healthy habits. Behavioral modification is the mainstay of obesity management so that the positive changes each patient makes have a lasting effect. There have been two major programs that have demonstrated success from intensive behavior modification, the CDC's National Diabetes Prevention Program and the Look Ahead Trial. Let's first discuss the Diabetes Prevention Program, sometimes called the DPP. The DPP was a randomized controlled trial conducted at 27 clinical centers in the U.S. from 1996 to 2001. There were over 3,000 study participants who were randomized to either lifestyle change, metformin, or placebo, and then were monitored for the development of diabetes. The lifestyle change group underwent a lifestyle modification program that was designed for patients to run over one year with weekly meetings at their primary care office focused on behavior change. Things like eating healthfully, adding physical activity, dealing with stress, coping with challenges like what to eat when you eat out, and getting back on track after slipping up. The DPP demonstrated that lifestyle modification focused on modest weight loss, their goal was 5 to 10% of body weight, and moderate intensity physical activity can significantly reduce the incidence of type 2 diabetes as much as 58% and also decreases cardiometabolic risk factors in high-risk individuals with benefits that have been sustained for at least 10 years out from the trial when compared to placebo. The look-ahead trial compared intensive lifestyle intervention with a control group that received diabetes support and education. It showed that weight loss was significantly greater in the intervention group at one, four, and eight years out from the trial suggesting the staying power of the establishment of healthy habits. Both of these programs were time-intensive and required teams to execute the behavior modification programs at primary care clinics. However, the takeaway is still important. Formal, dedicated behavior change has a lasting impact on weight and the development of complications related to obesity, like diabetes. For patients interested in joining weight loss communities for motivation, there is some evidence that shows Weight Watchers and other programs like Jenny Craig can have a very modest effect on weight loss, so it's not unreasonable to consider offering programs like these to your patients. Let's now return to our case. You determine that your patient is a good candidate for weight loss because his BMI is greater than 30. It's also greater than 27, and with the presence of a comorbid medical condition, his hypertension. You conduct a careful cardiovascular risk assessment, screen for additional complications of obesity, and provide dietary recommendations and a discussion of pharmacotherapy. With an achievement of even 5% weight loss, you have mitigated his risk for complications of obesity, and with continued dedication to lifestyle changes, you will help him establish healthy habits that will continue to serve him throughout his life.